Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Alan Jones, and I'm the guest host for today's episode of Welcome to Day One, the podcast for Aussie founders, startups, and the organizations that support Australian entrepreneurship. And I'm here today talking to my good friend and close colleague, Emily Rich. Emily, can you please introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Emily Rich. Uh, I'm a former founder of an AI company. I am the general partner at Mate Ventures, a VC fund that invests in remarkable founders from pre-seed to Series B. And I'm also the director of startups for Microsoft in Asia Pacific. And uh, full disclosure to, uh, to listeners, Emily and I are both partners in, uh, in M8 Ventures, the, uh, the pre-seed to Series A fund that um, Emily mentions. And uh, we've been friends a long time. So just, you know, if it seems like we already know each other, we do. But my job here today is to help you get to know Emily better and, and, and to help Emily share her stories of the, of the beginnings of, of, of the startup industry, the way she remembers it. Thanks for joining us, Emily. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yes, I, I, it feels very unusual because usually when I'm doing these, I'm not talking to such a good friend, but <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's really fun. Hey, I want to go back to um, to the beginning. And I think the, the beginning for you begins with your first memories of, of your interest in technology. Where did your interest in technology begin and, and, and what was going on for you at that time? Yeah, so I think for me, I jumped around a bit in terms of what did I want to actually do with my life after school and, you know, I was never very, well, I was terrible at math. I wasn't good. I, I didn't do science, uh, but then I sort of had this, I had a few ideas. At one point I thought about going into medicine and I think I landed on tech because I'd always been really interested in the latest gadget, you know, and, and back then it was like, oh, well, what's the new iPod Nano or, you know, something like that. But it was it was always so fascinating to me how technology was growing so quickly and at such a rapid rate and um, we always had a computer in our house because my my dad was actually in the field so he he did a lot in the IT space and I would say that I was definitely not encouraged by him because it was not a space that women were in in those days um, taking into account that uh, you know he's much of a much different generation and but I think that from actually having a computer in the house uh, having worked with you know MS-DOS and you know loading up games and seeing all of that stuff and just being fascinated by it just thinking it was so cool and then I always wanted to have you know the latest console or the latest you know, whatever it was that was happening technically at the time, just so I could understand understand it and also was just 
so fascinated by how technology actually advanced everything. And so I think that's where it really started and that's when I decided like, hey, I'm actually going to, you know, I'm going to do computer science. I'm going to go down that route. Yeah, cool. I think I remember um, you know, a similar sort of introduction: computers, a, a computer at home. You know, it being my dad's work computer, um, and me loading games up onto it. And, and I think one of the things that's different to today was was that um, the the standard of games in, in in programming and software development terms was was quite a bit lower, and and games were you know much more hackable back then and i think some of my you know early coding experiences were were mucking around with with my friends you know trying to hack some of our games and and do things that we we shouldn't have done did you try you know was that some of your early programming yeah i've de- definitely done some things like that definitely have tried my hand at a number of those things i think my first coding experience was honestly you know, when you had MySpace and you could create your own, you know, you would do all your own CSS and, all, you know, that was my first real introduction to coding. And then as I progressed, I did start sort of trying to, yeah, as you say, sort of this white hacking uh, sort of experience that I think you go through when you're really interested in computers and technology I would definitely try my hand at those and then as I sort of went further down and and as I got older I was really interested in cybersecurity and digital forensics so started trying to do some things around you know everything around cybersecurity was so fascinating to me and so wild the things that they could actually dissect out of you know USBs out of things that you would just never even think you would be able to recover things from that they that they were recovering and so that was another form of hacking also again white hat <laughs> <laughs> did you study cybersecurity at, at, at university i did yeah okay mm-hmm. did. um and 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 uh you know roughly when did you graduate i did not graduate <laughs> <laughs> again I another like common story a loaded question <laughs> Sorry, listeners, I knew the answer to that one. But um, it establish, establishes street cred in a particular generation of startup founder, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, particularly in cybersecurity. <laughs> um, so um, where did you graduate from? Uh, where did I not graduate from? <laughs> Sorry. Where did you not graduate from? Uh, the University of South Australia. All right, cool. So uh, tell us about um, the, the, the cybersecurity or, 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 the, or the startup community in, in South Australia in those days. Where was it located? How big or small was it? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the startup community and I'll talk about because when I was at uni and I was studying, that's when I actually started my startup. And so I never have actually worked in cybersecurity and I've never actually um, – I'm not keeping up with the trends at the moment. Uh, I do things, little things here and there, read things and that I'm really interested in, but uh, I've never worked in the space. But um, how, you know, in terms of when everything sort of, for me, I sort of started and dove into startups in 2013 and that was in Adelaide. And for those of you who don't know, Adelaide is quite small in population the startup community was very small it uh, I was just reminiscing and I was thinking I spent my days at Majoran Distillery which is now they dropped the distillery at some point it's now just called Majoran Adelaide it still exists today I believe it had around 30 deaths at that time but I can't exactly recall but it was not a significant and it was established the year before I started my startup in 2012, and it was the first co-working space in Adelaide, um, <laughs> and the longest standing one. So still standing today, yeah. Yep. Um, so, so 30 desks in that room. Did you start your startup in 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 Majora? So started at home. So did the whole started in the lounge room thing, and then eventually were you know was going to meetups getting into the community a little bit more albeit very small uh, but actually having 
access to a community that existed uh, rather than just going it alone with my co-founder. And, yeah, from there it was pretty pretty soon after that uh, we actually moved into Majoran and then a little while after that we spent time at the Innovation and Collaboration Centre, which is in Adelaide as well as part of the University of South Australia. So part of that deal was we actually won a grant of $50,000 and the space we were, we were also given space as part of that prize. So we moved there. We hung out there for a couple of years and again, quite small, a few desks. There are a few companies in there, even less than at Majoran because you had to have, you know, been a grant recipient or be affiliated in some way to the university. So yeah, it was, it was all just a very, you know, small, quaint existence, I suppose, where you knew everyone. Everyone knew everyone. For good or for bad. (laughs) What was that first startup? What was it called and what did it do? The startup was called Gemsoft and basically we actually started in security. So we actually incorporated as Gemsoft security and we later dropped the security. So the initial product itself was actually built upon computer vision machine learning and we were essentially looking at the problem of armed holdups or shrinkage or robberies or you know then we sort of started looking at war zone attacks you know army base airports all these sorts of things where the the initial product was basically an identification product that would look for faces, it would look for weapons, it would look for if your face is covered, it would look for, you know, it basically had all these different endpoints in which you would just be looking to see, hey, is this is this a threatening situation? So we built out that and that turned into, and that didn't work. So, of course, as you know, in good, you know, good startup form, we pivoted. <laughs> And <laughs> so, so did that did that not work because the the that you were a little bit early and the technology wasn't quite capable of delivering on that promise, or was it a a, a market thing, a customer demand thing? You were solving the wrong problem. It was definitely a market thing. It was definitely we had done a lot of market research in this play, in this space before we actually you know started. Well, we had started developing, but we actually hadn't gone really strictly into this product until we'd done a lot of market research and paid market research as well. And a lot of the feedback we got was really, really positive. I think there's a couple of things. So A, we were targeting retail and there is significant, basically the the bottom line for retail is very it's 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 not a wealthy 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 business right so it's not like they're just going to be spending tons of money on security whereas we thought they would and so that was the that was the first thing and then I think the technology was definitely ready for it uh even oh gosh even more so now because it would be so much quicker but back then it was it was already at a point where you could definitely that could definitely be in a commercial setting we'd proved that it could but uh, i think that the market the market wasn't ready for it and also you know it ended up we tried to go down the route of going okay so your insurance covers a lot of shrinkage so that's not of interest to you okay how about we do what we've seen before in terms of what you do with house insurance where you know if you have additional security on your house your insurance premium goes down so we started to work with insurance companies and tried to go at it that way and that was a hard slog and that didn't work either that was really really tough it's really tough to, to sell into insurance and to sort of you know to become a, a security provider that would get on the books to then say hey you get a discount in your premium so that was tough and then yeah we we completely pivoted the so we said hey we have all the technology we have 
facial recognition, we have facial detection, we have object detection, we have tons of machine learning. We have so much stuff we've built over the last 18 months. Let's turn it into an API. And so that's what we did. We turned it into an enterprise grade API. Then we started actually gaining traction. Cool. You started selling the shovels. Yeah, we started <laughs> we started selling and and also the first product was also a um, hardware with embedded software which for any of those hardware companies out there know how hard it is to sell hardware. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um until you can do over the air updates. Yeah. And then we decided okay, so software business for us thanks. That's 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So how long did Gemsoft last? And and uh, you know, broad terms, you know, why you know why you're no longer a Gemsoft today? Oh my goodness! It's what is it? 2022. Yeah, I guess it's <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's all lost a, in the mists of time. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just like why aren't you there today? I'm like, oh wow, it's been so long. It's been almost ten years. Well, yeah, almost ten years. So 2013 we started, and then we. As I said, pivoted out of security, created the API, won our first big enterprise contract. That then allowed us to gain that sort of real trust in a lot of the other bigger companies. And so from there, we won a few more contracts. We established our own office. We grew our team. We, you know, we did the whole thing where we were like yes we're hitting a million you know in annual rev uh you know that was all all of these sort of milestones that we were hitting we had a contract with a company where we were working on so that they were using our api and at that point in time also we were running bespoke services so if you didn't have an in-house dev team we could provide you with one and a lot of people at that point in time didn't have the capacity that they do now to deploy AI solutions and people with that expertise. So that was a service that we offered as part of the services side of the business. And then there was obviously a product side of the business. So with that, the last contract that we were working on, they wanted to acquire us. We were at a point where we wanted to sell. We were either going to sell or raise more money. And we worked through that acquisition and exited in 2017. Cool. So, but we'd been working on it for about five years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, great. That's a, that's a that's a great story. Um, thinking back to to that period, like 2012 to to 2017 yeah. sort of time, you know, back back to the 2012 days and and Majoran and so on. Back then, who were the the which were the Australian startups that that you you remember most admiring? Like, who were the archetypes? Who were the heroes of the industry back then? Did we have any in Australia, or were they all offshore? Oh my goodness! I remember. I only remember a few. Um, I think because I was so busy with my with my company, I was sort of head down for so many years, but. I I do remember that I got to speak with companies that had done really well um, through, you know, through sessions that Majoran would run. We would have people come and speak to us from the ecosystem. So people like Steve Baxter, we had, uh, you know, Jindo from Happy Co. I, we had a conversation with him around the US market when we were looking. We, we did go into the US market. So when we were actually looking to get into the US market, um, spoke to him. There's There were a few people that I remember in that time, but it was honestly a lot of the people that I was around. I mean, I remember Atlassian uh, because, you know, everyone was talking about them and I don't know if I just think no one had done anything that big at that point uh, in Australia, but that's just my recollection of it. And, yeah, there were some really cool people that I, you know, I was working, I, I got to work with some other startups as well. So when we went to New York and we were selling in New York, 
Uh, we got to hang out with some really cool data companies. I can't remember the names of any of these people, which is so bad, but they were just amazing, amazing data companies, digital digital companies in New York, like really cool. So, yeah, had a, had a really great experience, but that's, yeah, that's what I can sort of remember from that time. Yeah, cool, some international travel and some overseas customers and dealing with time zones and foreign currency support. Oh, yeah. Probably at a time where it's a little bit difficult to, to manage all of that in, in uh, cloud accounting software. And, and what, what sort of um, – so you mentioned before that you won a $50,000 grant um, in, in the early days or, or yes, 50000 yes. in, in value. Were there other government programs that, that were, were useful to, to Gemsoft and to other startups um, at, at that time or was it all a bit of a, a wasteland of, of, of uh, no government support? Honestly, there wasn't a lot. I, the, the one thing that I will call out is – but there's a few there's a few things that I would call out. So definitely the the grant that we received from University of South Australia from their commercialization department changed our world and you think it's such a small amount of money but it's so meaningful to us to be able to develop and it was so much money to us at that point in time. You know, we didn't have any revenue uh, but we had this great technology and still to this day, you know, we we did some things with that technology that were were first in world as far as we know for, for a couple of those things. So that, that support meant so much. And then secondly, Majoran actually hosted us for free. So we were actually in there for free, which was just, again, made the biggest difference to everything that we did mm. it was established by a guy called Michael Reed and he's someone that I'm so thankful for because he actually basically gave us free space and said you know I know you can't can't afford it but you know we want you here and we know you're doing something amazing and what and was so, uh, sorry what, what was what was Michael doing and he wasn't giving free space to startup founders <laughs> He was running Majoran, making money off of making money off the other founders that could afford it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. I think he was an accountant. He was at once. At one stage, he was, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, that's that was. But not while not while he was at Majoran. There's, there's there's been a few people in in each capital city that are kind of necessary for the for the. The, the beginnings of a startup community and, and often, you know, a lawyer and an accountant who are prepared to give some of their advice for free to, to the startups that they know just because they find startups more interesting than, uh, than their own regular business customers, I think, is, is the main motivation. Yeah, I agree. And I think also the same goes for people who are in, this, in the actual co-working spaces themselves. You see a lot of you know, they might be a former lawyer or a former accountant or, you know, I had one of the other companies that sat in there with us. Um, I was like, hey, can you help us do our accounting <laughs> for free? Yeah. <laughs> because he was an accountant, uh, well, former accountant, uh, and I was like, can you just help us with, like, levelling out some of these things? Because at that point in time I was doing all the finances, so... Uh, that was really helpful too. So there were, there were quite a few things like that that happened and then obviously with the Innovation and Collaboration Centre, they gave us free space, they introduced us to our first customer, they obviously provided us, you know, this, this $50,000 which, as I said, meant so much and the other government support in terms of what was happening at that time was the uh, commercialization Australian grant so we did also receive that uh, much later down the track but uh, that was the only other thing happening after you did the Gensoft um, startup experience was your first impulse to go back in and and found or co-found another startup or, or what was going on in your in your head you know what did you learn from that experience and, and what did you decide to do next so as soon as as soon as we sold the company, I knew that I wanted to stay in startup land. It's so infectious. And I knew that I wanted to assist other startups. I'd already 
when I was doing Gemsoft, I'd already started mentoring in programs like Techstars and a few other, you know, smaller ones that popped up here and there. And I loved it. And I loved being able to, you know, share my knowledge. And that was my passion. That was what I knew I wanted to do with my life was invest in amazing companies, mentor amazing companies. So as soon as, as soon as that happened, I knew that I wanted to start investing as an angel, which I started doing. And then I knew I wanted to be a VC and I knew that I wanted to also, you know, mentor startups in whatever capacity I could and share all of my mistakes, anything that worked, you know, all of those things, all of that knowledge that I had picked up that I loved the journey. I wasn't ready to jump into another startup or start another startup and I I still haven't since. I I think about it every now and again and maybe further down the track I will, but um at the moment, yeah, I really just enjoy enjoy that aspect of it is the investing and the mentoring. So tell us a bit about, so you get a, a, a big emotional reward um, and, and hopefully sometimes some financial rewards from being an angel investor um, because you're helping founders of multiple companies rather than helping the team that you've employed in your own startup, I guess. Is the decision to step up from angel investing to, to venture capital partly about being able to do that for even more companies? What, what's, what's that about? Because obviously... There's, you know, there are bigger pressures. Um, there's, there's more at risk when you step up into VC. Why is that important to you? Yeah, I think I always wanted to go into. I knew that I wanted to be able to help out at scale, so I knew I wanted to do VC. But angel investing was that sort of leapfrog for me that would at least give me some of some sort of a portfolio and some sort of credibility in market and. Yeah, for me, it's it's the same reason that I also took the role at Microsoft is I help hundreds of thousands of founders, you know, and that's powerful. And I am able to do that because I have a large company behind me who, which means I, I'm able to actually achieve a lot of the things that I want to achieve at scale rather than to your point yeah helping one or two companies that's really it is really meaningful but it's also you know how do we as people who have been former founders as people who have lived through it as people who have the experience how do we i don't know impart some wisdom i don't know what you would even call it you know but basically just our knowledge that we actually have learned and things that seem so obvious to me and I don't obviously know everything (laughs) about this space at all but things that seem obvious to me would not be obvious to someone who's day one in their startup yep and 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 so is it does that kind of encapsulate what Microsoft for Startups does and what you and your teams do you're there to to provide that knowledge which is which is second nature to you which just seems obvious because you've deployed that knowledge so many times to people that that you know have yet to be exposed to that yeah I mean sometimes people get me on really tough questions that I that I'm like oh no (laughs) what does Microsoft for Startups do what do you do um, Microsoft for Startups is exactly (laughs) that right it's we support companies to access up to 350,000 US dollars in benefits through access to technical and business resources. So everything from cloud mentoring, we've got subject matter experts in pretty much every area you can think of. So we've got executives, we've got sales, we've got everything. And then when you speak to someone like myself or one of um, one of my colleagues, we all have startup experience, right? So we can come on that journey with you and actually feel that empathy and, you know, when I'm doing deep dives with companies and I'm I'm looking at their business or I'm looking at their deck and I'm, you know, I think we're, we're in this unique position where we can say, hey, we see, you know, and I know you do too, Alan, we see 500 of these a year 
Um, I have a pretty good idea of what's, you know, of what's going on in terms of, hey, who's who's got a really good deck? What's wh- What made it really nice? Uh, a lot of the things that I'm doing with companies are around their growth and how do they grow, how do they scale sustainably, all of those sorts of things. And then we do that the same, the exact same thing on the technical side. So how do you scale securely, stably, everything? So that that's what we're all about is, and as I've said, I can, you know, because of the the machine that is Microsoft, because it's it's such a large company, I have so many founders that I, you know, not, not just myself, that my whole team can actually influence and assist. Emily, I want to ask you now about the ecosystem that, that we have today. You sit in, a, in an influential position. Um, your, your, the, the branches of your tree um, go a long way out of the ecosystem, you know, go down deep and, and far across. Um, can you tell us about some of the gaps you think our ecosystem has today? So I think the biggest gap is talent mm-hmm. massively, just being able to procure talent I'm constantly being hit up for recommendations for technical talent specifically. The irony is that they're going to the bigger startups who can pay more or they'll go to a Microsoft, Amazon, Google, who can also pay much more. So the technical talent shortage that we have is no secret. It's, you know, we are all facing that same thing. Even the even the largest companies are facing technical talent shortages but you know when it comes down to it people are graduating and they're going oh am I going to take this job in a startup for $50,000 or am I going to take this job over a big x scale up or big company for $150,000-$200,000 yeah you know and they've just graduated it's tough yeah Yep, and, and I think if you go right back to the to the root cause of that problem, you know, when you think about how many other kids were interested in a career in technology and you're graduating um, class in high school, you know, or if I think about how many kids in my graduating class in in 1982 were um, interested in a career now in you're technology. Showing your age, Alan. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I, I don't think that ratio has really changed much. Like there's more kids graduating from, from year 12 than there were back then, but I still think the ratio is pretty unchanged, right? You know, and the number of kids who go to university, the percentage of them who, who, who you know, maybe the the percentage that now study us, now interested in a STEM career might have increased a little bit. But I don't think when it comes to people that want to study software engineering, I, 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 I don't feel like we're graduating any more software engineers that are remaining in Australia than, than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago, do you? No, I, I don't think it's significant at all. I mean, if we can start telling people, hey, we have too many lawyers, stop being a lawyer, you know, maybe, <laughs> but, you know, there's, and and that's a really good point as well is that you, I, I, I do think that we're keeping more talent hmm. because we do have a lot of technical teams here and because we are seeing you know, the Canvas, the Atlassians, you know, the Colt Tramps, all of these large scale-ups, if you will, who are able to pay, um, you know, at, at a market level for talent. They're able to compete with the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Googles. They're absolutely able to compete with them now. And so we are retaining talent in Australia. But I, for me, for example, you know, the my technical team, that was with me at Gemsoft. The majority of them are overseas now, yeah. working at yeah, working at Facebook because you know they all wanted to go into artificial intelligence, and so for them it's okay. Go work at uh, Meta under the AI program. You know, go work at world class institutions. And I mean, I'm so happy for them, but we don't retain that talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really important gap. And 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 so you know, t- to balance that out, where do you think we in Australia are, are doing well? All right, what are we doing well? 
I think that as as a community, I think that we come together really well. I think that's the thing that I I notice the most is that we collaborate really well. We co-invest in a way that I haven't seen in other markets. It's really friendly. And I know you and I, we do a lot of co-investing with with funds and, you know, other angels and all sorts of things. And it's never a, I'm sure people have bad experiences, but it's it's never, it's very unique to this ecosystem uh, from, from what I've seen working now all across Asia as I have been for the last few years with Microsoft is it's it's a really it's a real standout for me is how close that ecosystem actually is and how we're able to come together and not necessarily be competing against each other as yeah, well. It doesn't I think seem, they do that really well. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's ever a, a battle to the death. It's more like a a battle for space, light. And, and and nutrients right you know like you know we feel like the the opportunity for everybody to succeed is, is much much bigger than the opportunity for us to to crush our competitor yeah which is very different in in certain markets and i mean definitely if you're talking about uh about silicon valley i mean it's it's crush or be crushed as a vc there <laughs> so it's very different it's a very uh you know, it's very friendly and it's very, it's a really very unique actually in, from anywhere I've seen, in even in any other parts of Asia, that they're not co-investing the same way we are. They're not collaborating the same way we are. Yeah. And, and do you think that, um, you know, the last couple of years of, of, of lockdown, has that made any difference in, in, in what you see? around that that challenge that we've always had around the distance between us and Silicon Valley? I think that that from from what I've heard from people who have taken investment from the US, for example, for founders that I've worked with, they're seeing that gap close a lot because it used to be, okay, you have to travel there, you have to be there, you have to see someone. Okay, not possible. How do we get around it? And it's become it's become okay, you know. It's just become normal to to pitch on a Zoom call to investors to actually write checks based on not seeing someone face to face, and that's been really normal. That's just been oh, the way that it's been having to work. I mean, people couldn't just stop deploying capital, so you know they had to work their way around it, and they did that. And I think the because of that, we're going to see a change. I mean, I'm not sure that we've seen it entirely yet, but I think that we'll see a change in, you know, just being able to actually take investment from all sorts of places and not have to necessarily be in that country physically. Cool. I look forward to seeing more of that. Uh, when I ask other guests this question, it's always a little bit of a challenge um, because, you know, Australians often prefer to um, share our unpopular opinions in private and our popular opinions in, in public. But is, do you hold an unpopular opinion about the Australian startup ecosystem? It can be a, a positive one or a negative. <laughs> what, what do you think that most other people would disagree with? <laughs> I don't know if people would disagree, but I, I, get, I suppose it's, it's, it's more of a observation and it could be slightly unpopular in some circles, but I think, you know, to caveat, I think we have great government support, but I just think we could do even better. I think we could do even more in this space. Um, I've seen some amazing things in places like Singapore, for example. They have done investing dollar for dollar in private capital uh, with guidelines that are not you're not jumping hoops for that money you are sure you you absolutely have to apply for it but they're making it really easy for you to start a startup there so just just to be clear dollar for dollar for investing means that there are singapore government venture funds that will invest alongside other venture funds to the same degree so you know an air tree or blackbird ventures puts in a dollar the government puts in a dollar too is that right Correct. Yes, that's right. So they have, and I'm not sure of the exact dollar amount that they they have allocated, but uh, the majority of the companies that I work with in Singapore have received that dollar for dollar investment. Mm-hmm. 
and it means obviously they can grow significantly and it also keeps them in Singapore which is what they which is what the Singaporean government wants obviously yeah. and the private capital firms are very happy about that because they're essentially doubling their investment straight away so it's a nice incentive for them to get involved in you know there's other places that uh, so I don't do a lot of work there but Germany they have a really great system where it's so easy and it's it's like 10 minutes to set up a basically set up everything you need to start a company there and it's just so easy I personally haven't seen the process but my my counterpart in Europe was telling me about and I was I was amazed so I had to look it up but yeah really impressive stuff that some of those governments are doing that I think we could learn from and say okay why are they becoming you know startup hotbeds if you will why are they doing so well uh it's because you know as i mentioned previously in my story you know what that 50,000 meant for me what the accelerating commercialization grant meant for me at that time was not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things but was a huge amount of money to us it meant we could start acquiring customers and Eventually, we turn that fifty thousand into, you know, a million, sort of thing. So, you know, really, yeah. I think that private companies and private capitals have a large place to play. But grants and zero interest loans go a long way at the start of the journey. Cool, very cool. What about us as a community? What what does the startup community itself? What what could it be doing better in the future? What's the most important thing that we need to improve? I really would like to see even more former founders investing in companies, um, investing in the next generation of founders because I believe that they not only have the money to provide but, as we spoke about, they have the knowledge to share mm-hmm. and I think that's really important and I think that that means that couldn't be the difference between you being able to scale and grow a lot faster mm-hmm. um, with that. So that that's what I believe we could um, could really implement a lot better as a community. Yeah, cool. So somewhere out there, there's a there's a whole cohort, a whole whole generation of early employees. You know, people who are in the first hundred employees at at last year in Canva, exactly. safety culture. The list the list goes on. Um, and uh, yeah, where are they? Huh? Yeah, they've got to be that they they should. There's be a handful. Here. There's some, <laughs> but there's more out there. <laughs> there are, there are, and I yeah. know there's a lot of there's already you know a number of people that are that are doing it. I'm just saying that. Yeah. It would be great to see that even increase, just to see what would happen. I think some really cool things would happen. And you're right, that experience of you know being you know, first 100 employees of Canberra or being a first 100 employee at Atlassian. I mean, that's that knowledge, that experience you have, that's mm. that's not something you learn overnight. Yeah, yeah. And, and some of the most useful people in the ecosystem now are, are that handful of people with, with hands-on operator experience, you know, who've, who've been part of building a successful startup. Absolutely. Is, is, is there a category outside investment, you know, so a, a startup founder at, at the beginning or, or partway through their, their, their startup founder journey right now, it's probably best for them not to start angel investing while they're still trying to build their first startup. But <laughs> is, what's, what's an action we can actually yes, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do we need them to be doing better? What do we need our founders to be doing better? Hmm. That's a good question. I think. Thank you. But I think that let's have something that I'm really passionate about is our DE&I efforts. And I think, you know, we've made a, and I know a lot of other funds have, we've made particular caveats in who we invest in based on the representation of minorities within their company. And so that's what we can do as investors. But what can you do as a startup? You can actually start thinking about how do you have 
a better representation of the whole world and mm. I'm still not seeing that enough. I'm still seeing that, you know, we might be getting into this trap of, hey, we're building we're building product, we're building great product, but we're building it with one way of thinking or we're building it with two ways of thinking. We're not building it with all these, um, <laughs> we know with everyone in mind, you know, every community in mind. That's when we get accessibility issues. That's when we have all sorts of things, right? Like you'll develop a product and say, and sorry, white guys, mm. but <laughs> you'll say, you know, have a team of four white male founders and you think, okay, fine, you need to know that you have limitations then on what you can understand about other people in the community and how to build products for them. And that's where I'd like to see, and I encourage founders all the time to think about how do you make the best product? You make the product for everyone. That's how you make the best product. That's awesome. And then, you know, when you look back at the history of the Australian startup ecosystem, it was founded by misfits and outsiders, you know, and, and yes, those misfits and outsiders were, were um, largely male and almost exclusively white, but they were still misfits and outsiders. If you, now we have a viable, successful industry that the rest of the world recognizes as a huge opportunity. If you suddenly shut off the supply of misfits, outsiders, marginalized um, people, then then you miss out on all that creativity and and all of that insight that, that, that they bring, you know, and you end up building a product for a monoculture. And that just means you're addressing a smaller market. Why would any startup want to do that? Exactly. Why do you want to address a smaller market when you can have a whole, you know, a whole market? That's an awesome answer. Thank you. So um, the advice question, if a new entrepreneur came to you, given all of your experience, the mistakes, the wins and, and the losses, what one piece of advice would you give them that might help increase their chances of success? Okay. I actually have sort of two answers to this. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, okay. I'll give you two. <laughs> One's really quick. One's just, I think, just start. And it's it's really easy to incorporate a company now and get a low-code or a no-code prototype going. So technology has facilitated that for us, which I did not have that ability back when I started. And we are much further along. Now, that's sort of one small thing that I think you can just start and you can do and you can prototype really easily. Mm. The, The biggest piece of advice that I actually have is, and this is, Slightly controversial to people who uh, are bootstrapping, but mm-hmm. I this is from my experience, is raising money earlier and raising smart money. And what I mean by that is raise money that comes with knowledge attached to it and comes with experience attached to it. So raising from reputable angels, VCs, uh, obviously, government grants, if you can get them, of course, um, an excellent way of, of doing that. Um, I thought that it was a really great, amazing feat that I could bootstrap. And I look back and I go, I would never do that again because I could have grown it so much bigger and so much quicker than uh, what I was able to do by bootstrapping. So... You know, and one of the, it sort of ties into one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was taking money from inexperienced angels. And so I'm really passionate about people taking money, smart money, from experienced, knowledgeable people in this area. It also, you know, deeply feeds into my passion of being a former founder who's now a VC and also, you know, running and implementing a really founder-friendly environment at Microsoft as well. Yeah, great answer. Thank you. So um, time to put your futurist hat on, um, your futurist yeah. skater cap. And um, what's, what's been a recent development in the startup world that you think is going to be a really big deal? Well, I actually think that seeing more unicorns coming out of Australia means the world knows who we are, which we're being seen now to be on a global scale thanks to you know our ecosystem that's grown so much and the you know we have 
we have names, we have logos that people recognise and I think that's actually going to be really, really positive for investors investing here, bringing money into the country, also for our funds as we're seeing our funds now are raising, you know, huge amounts of money and having really, really large funds that they can deploy capital through. I think that we could, you know, for instance, India, for example, produces a unicorn on average every nine days. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is. But I don't think we're going to be there because <laughs> we don't have the population to support it. Yeah. And it's not just about producing unicorns, but I think it's helped us put us on this global scale, which means that, oh, people are thinking of us as, oh, wow, okay, you really are a startup ecosystem to watch. What if we set the goal every 90 days? Can we do that, Australia? <laughs> every 90, one unicorn, unicorn every, every 90, 90 days. days. We just add a zero on. <laughs> the ATO might explode. <laughs> um, Emily, um, is, is, is there anything else that, um, that, that we should cover in, in today's interview? Is there a question that you wish that I'd asked you that I haven't? I think your questions were phenomenal. Thank you. I think your answers were incredible. <laughs> so, Emily Rich, coding founder, angel investor, VC, um, head of startup stuff from Microsoft for Startups. Just want to thank you very much for your time today. It's been a very informative and interesting interview. Thanks, Alan. It's been so great to be here. Folks at home, I'm Alan Jones, today's uh, guest host for this episode of Welcome to Day One, the podcast for Aussie founders, startups and organizations that support Australian entrepreneurship. Hit like and subscribe and uh, listen to us in all the podcasting tools. You've been an awesome audience and we love you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.